0: Welcome to Bottled Petrichor, a podcast dedicated to discussing key topics in Islamic history and thought. In addition to a short lecture at the start of most episodes, we ask our guest experts questions submitted by listeners and allow them to share their thoughts in a safe environment. Please visit our Twitter page for feedback and question submission forms. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy. I am very excited today to have on Dr. Marine van Putten. Thank you so very much, Doctor, for being here today.
1: Yeah, very happy to be here.
0: I'm hoping to just get right into it and ask you a bit about yourself. Mm-hmm.
1: All right. Um, so, well, um, I'm Reifel Pitta. I, I work uh, at Leiden University. Uh, my research focuses on um, the linguistic history of Arabic mostly, uh, but also the textual history of the Quran. Um development of the Quranic reading traditions and how those interrelate with the linguistic history of Arabic. And um, previously, I've worked on uh, the linguistic history of the Berber languages as well, um, and I've published quite a lot on that. Uh, But right now, my main focus is Arabic, Semitic languages as well, uh, more generally. And that's what I work on, yeah.
0: The doctor, I'm familiar with some of his papers, but also his uh, Twitter It's very, very important, actually. It's one of the few Twitter accounts that you can follow and benefit from greatly. So I urge all people who are listening and are interested in the topic to follow Dr.'s uh, account. I will leave it in the description of the episode. So I wanted to ask, what is a historical linguist and how does one train to be one?
1: Okay. Um, So a historical linguist is interested, well, in the history of the language and one of the main goals of historical linguistics is to reconstruct earlier stages of the language uh, of a language or languages uh, which may not necessarily have been uh, written down um so to give you a a kind of um comparison anyone who's who's who studied hebrew and arabic um will have noticed that these these languages have very obvious similarities. And the reason for those similarities is because they must have some kind of common ancestor. But this common ancestor was not written down at any uh, point. And we tend to call these languages proto-languages and the common ancestor, the ultimate common ancestor of what we call the Semitic languages to which both Hebrew and Arabic belong. Uh, that ancestor would be called proto-Semitic. And proto-Semitic is a, a uh, prehistoric language was not written down. But by comparing these different languages with one another and seeing how they develop through time, uh, we can make reasonable inferences how that language would have looked. And this is one of, I think, one of the most exciting things about the field is you can really kind of go back in time and use linguistics as a kind of time machine to find out you know, how did people speak uh, at this earlier point. Um, Added less So this is often the ultimate goal, uh, but also a lot of things that we do within historical linguistics work with early sources, um, analyze how the language has changed over time, uh, see how to interrelate with each other and see, you know, uh, make a kind of periodization of like a early period, middle period, later period, and see what kinds of things happened there. Um, and that's kind of what we do in historical linguistics in terms of how to train for it. Um, it Well, there, there's a couple of um, places where, where it's possible to do this, to get this kind of training uh, later, where I did my BA is one of the big places for this, um, especially specifically for different language family, the Indo European language family, which English and Dutch and French and uh, Hindi uh, and Persian uh, all belong to. Um, and that's what I was trained in originally. I, I learned Sanskrit, classical Greek, um, Hittite, uh, Old High German, uh, Gothic, etc. Um, and so there was a specific program for that where you could learn historical linguistics and uh, historical linguistics specifically of Indo European. Uh, but I started to use these methodologies that I learned there um, elsewhere as well. Uh, These days, there's not a specific program for historical linguistics anymore, at least in Leiden. Uh, There's certainly some other places where it's still possible to follow. Uh, But you just take a linguistics BA and then choose a specialization in historical linguistics. And that's kind of how you end up being a historical linguist.
0: Understood. Okay. And um, as you move on, and I wanted to ask some of these questions that I have for you about Arabic, I was hoping you could give a brief lecture on Arabic as a language, its position on the Semitic family tree, closest relatives.
1: Yeah. Um, oh, sure. I, I certainly can do that. So, as we mentioned, Arabic is a Semitic language. And the Semitic languages are languages, well, spoken, say, originally in, in uh, Mesopotamia, Syria, uh, and the Arabian Peninsula. And... Uh, These days also, uh, very importantly, uh, although often forgotten, in Ethiopia, um, the Ethiopic uh, languages are Semitic languages uh, to a large extent. Um, And the Semitic language family uh, consists of a bunch of fairly closely related languages. Uh, If we look at these languages, they're, they're obviously obviously related. It's very difficult to look at one Semitic language and not instantly recognize it as something to do with another Semitic language. So, uh, some examples of what Semitic languages are. So, Arabic is an obvious one, of course. Uh, Hebrew is another important one. Aramaic is a a very, historically very important language. Uh, These days, only very few speakers left, but it used to be very important. Akkadian, uh, a very important language uh, that used to use the cuneiform script on these clay tablets. Uh, lots of lots of linguistic material for that. Uh, that's one of the oldest and the oldest attested Semitic language that we have. Um, other examples, as I already mentioned, the Ethio-Semitic languages um, for historical purposes, most importantly, Ge'ez, which is the um, uh, liturgical language of, of the uh, Ethiopic Orthodox Church. Uh, But also modern languages like Amharic, uh, Tigray, Tigrinya, uh, both in uh, Eritrea and Ethiopia. Others, well, become less uh, well-known and uh, more uh, marginal, but important still. Phoenician, uh, Punic, which is a derivative of Phoenician. Uh, And the modern South Arabian languages, uh, which are spoken in Yemen and Oman today, and further back the ancient south arabian languages which used to be uh the main languages of which we have many inscriptions uh from yemen uh, say uh, the sebaic kingdom uh, the kingdom of saba uh, is one of these uh, semitic languages so these these are all kind of interrelated they are uh, closely related to one another and some of them have very long histories, very long written histories. Most of them actually have very long written histories compared to, say, other languages of the world. Um, since uh, uh, the Middle East is one of the important origins of writing, we actually have Semitic languages written very, very early on. Now, um, when we look at uh, Arabic specifically, uh, well, let's let's first talk about so. When we look at the Semitic language family, we often kind of represent this as a tree, a tree of a ultimate ancestor, Proto-Semitic, which then splits up into different branches, which then split up into different branches again, etc. And uh, so we often make a distinction. We, we say Proto-Semitic split into East and West Semitic. East Semitic, mostly represented by Akkadian, and West Semitic, basically everything else. And if you look at Arabic, um, Arabic sits in a branch of the Semitic language family uh, that we call Central Semitic. And uh, Central Semitic is a, is a big group to which, for one, also belongs Hebrew and Aramaic, uh, Sebaic, one of these ancient South Arabian languages. And they are somewhat closely related to each other, and some of the other West Semitic languages, such as modern South Arabian languages and the Ethio-Semitic languages. Yeah, so those are those are kind of the, the, the that's kind of the position of, of Arabic. And when we look at some of these written histories, what's what's interesting about about Arabic is that for a very long time uh, it was thought that Arabic basically existed as a unwritten language for most of its history, and that made made it have a kind of special position within uh, the comparative study of these Semitic languages because it looks especially classical Arabic um, as we uh, encounter it uh, in in, in our textbooks these days, Um, looks extremely archaic, much, much more unchanged over time than, for example, Hebrew. When we first start seeing Hebrew being written down, it is already much more developed and has lost many contrasts that classical Arabic still had. While the time difference between these two is enormous. Uh, The first time we start seeing uh, Hebrew written is, is thousands of years before we saw classical Arabic written for the first time. And that kind of made for an interesting position of Arabic within within the language family, because it was so important for our reconstructions and understanding of, of, of the history uh, of the Semitic language family. Um, but it has also led to um, a way of thinking about Arabic, which is not quite in keeping with how we should be thinking about it. Um, anything that looks kind of Arabic-like Uh, But wasn't exactly classical Arabic, which was assumed to just kind of be this unchanging standards even well before Islam, uh, but was just somehow never written down. And anything that didn't look exactly like that was concluded must be something else, a sister language of Arabic or something along those lines. And that has made it very difficult to write a real history of Arabic uh, before Islam, especially. Uh, And... That has been changing a lot, uh, especially um, due to the fantastic work of my dear colleague Ahmad al-Jalad, who's been tirelessly working on the uh, inscriptions of Arabia, pre-Islamic inscriptions of Arabia, and has found and has shown very convincingly that uh, the inscriptions which are written in the Safiyyidic scripts are clearly some form of Arabic, have all the typical hallmarks of what makes Arabic Arabic. Um, and there's thousands of inscriptions of, uh, of that, uh, of, of, say, that form of Arabic. Um, and that corpus up until now has basically been ignored to understand the history of Arabic itself, while it should have been included into that. And because of that, all kinds of new perspectives were opened up, uh, allowed us to think in a very different way about uh, the language of the Quran but also just classical Arabic, where does it come from, how does it develop, what do we know about it, uh, and what should be called and shouldn't be called Arabic uh, before Islam. And so it's not just the Safiyyidic inscriptions, which are mostly found in, in Jordan and, and, and Syria. Um, also, the language of the Nabataeans, the Nabatean kingdom, uh, was almost certainly Arabic, and the Nabateans were, were a kingdom um, in southern Jordan who reigned from about 4th century BCE until the early 2nd century CE uh, when they were um, assimilated into the Roman Empire. Um, and the Nabateans uh, were quite clearly Arabic-speaking. All their names are clearly arabic uh, but interestingly enough, they wrote in Aramaic, and this this is a, a tradition which is quite typical uh, of much of the Middle East from this period, is people wouldn't always write the language they wrote, but rather, uh, the language they spoke, but rather would write a kind of business language. So they used Aramaic to write, and used the Aramaic script to write uh, this Aramaic, and uh, but Clearly, the names show this, and even in the Aramaic, they write every now and then Arabic words kind of shine through. And we have a couple of inscriptions by the Nabataeans which are clearly in Arabic uh, and are just a form of Arabic, but not the Arabic we know, not the classical Arabic we know, um, but somewhat different, a different dialect. And what's interesting about the Nabataeans specifically and why I brought them up is because the scripts that they used was a, a, a form of the Aramaic scripts which, as the centuries continue, because Nabataean Arabic and Nabataean Arabic writing tradition, uh, and the Nabataean Aramaic writing tradition, I should say, um, continues to be used even after the assimilation of of, of the Nabataean kingdom into the Roman Empire. So, it it remains an important written language uh, after that. And... Um, even the centuries that follow, you see that the script in the inscriptions that we have, and we only have inscriptions, or mostly only have inscriptions, we see that the script starts evolving more and more fluent writing shapes, which suggests that it was also written on perishable material with ink, which uh, is much more conducive to fluid writing shapes than uh, rock is. And as we see these shapes uh, morph more and more and more, we see that it starts to look more like the... Um, Arabic script as we know it today. And so by, say, the 5th century CE, I would say uh, the script has basically taken on the shape of the modern Arabic script, still has some differences here and there. Modern Arabic script, I say, the script as we know it from the 7th century. Um, This is, of course, a clear bias from me calling that the modern Arabic script uh, because I work with 7th century manuscripts so much. But that is um, what we kind of see developing. And this is one of the interesting positions of, of Arabic and also why it's very important to look at these inscriptions, because that is really the tradition that feeds into the seventh century and feeds into um, the writing system of um, Quranic Arabic, Classical Arabic to early papyri, etc. cetera. Uh, and... Integrating that kind of new knowledge of, of pre-Islamic Arabic into uh, how we understand the history of uh, Islamic Arabic, Islamic era Arabic, has been very important. So that, that's about it. Uh, that's uh, my brief language on Arabic.
0: Thank you so much for that. I wanted to move on and ask, just generally, how do you determine the position of a language in relation to another language in the, in the Semitic tree? You had mentioned a little bit about this, but I just wanted to follow up and ask more about that sure yeah
1: so h- how to determine so so this is a really interesting question and it's hard and, and, and uh, it's something that continues to be a, a point of discussion among Semiticists uh, they are constantly looking where do these languages fit on the tree and um, the tree has shifted in how it looks uh, quite considerably over the past say 100 years or so um, so When I say Arabic is closely related to, or more closely related to, say, Aramaic and Hebrew uh, than to, I don't know, um, Ethiopic, for example, um, it means that for some reason these languages are closer to one another than they are to other languages. And how do we determine closer and how do we go about that? Um, That can be very difficult uh, because... When we see that two languages are close to one another, um, that can be for two reasons. Either because they have a shared ancestor and both of them simply haven't changed at all, or because they were once a language, or they have changed over time. Um, Let me try to give that a slightly better example. So when we try to classify languages, we are interested in cases where we can see that two languages or more than two languages have changed over time together or where we can see that it's more likely that whatever they have is the innovative way of doing things. Because if we look at two languages and they simply haven't changed their pronunciation for the past 1,000 years, um, those two languages being very close to one another just means they haven't changed a lot, so they are archaic. And being archaic doesn't necessarily put them closer to each other on a language tree. Whenever we see that two languages are doing something together and innovating their language in the same way over time, that is an indication that they were in contact with each other and were once kind of part of the same language group that were communicating with each other and making changes together. And going by that principle, which is shared innovation, so looking for innovations in Two different languages that they share with each other, not shared with certain other branches. This is kind of how we decide the branching of these languages. We try to figure out how has this or that language changed over time that puts these a bit closer to each other than to other languages. And so, uh, and this can be very difficult, and we we end up. Fighting over these things as, as uh, historical linguistics, all the time, uh, linguists all the time, uh, because we cannot agree whether something is an innovation or an archaism, and uh, that makes all the difference. If languages just haven't changed over time, it doesn't really matter that much for the subclassification. Subclassification, we're really looking: have they shared any developments together, which shows they were part of one speech community at some point. Uh, so that's how we go about this. Um, I could try and 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 go in a bit more detail on the technical details uh, how we decide these things, but I'm afraid I would probably get very technical. Um, so let's not quite do that. Uh, with with okay. it, it's it's so one of the big questions. I, what I what I could kind of kind of summarize is when we talk about Central Semitic, um, one of the big innovations of Central Semitic is the development of its verbal system, where the way that um, imperfect verbs are made uh, seems to change quite radically from how they used to be made in a branch above that. Uh, And I think uh, I will not uh, impose it on (laughs) the listeners to go into full full details of that, but uh, that's kind of how
0: we think about these things. Okay, understood. Um, you had mentioned earlier a bit about Proto-Semitic, and I think at some point it was thought that the closest language to Proto-Semitic is Arabic, but now I think the field is shifting a little bit. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, um, sure. Uh, that's true. Um, you see that, that say, uh, reconstructions of, of Proto-Semitic used to be extremely Arabic-centric, um, and that's not surprising because, yes, uh, classical Arabic has an extremely archaic shape, uh, c- a kind of extremely archaic character, um, which causes us to sometimes blindly accept that whatever Arabic has must be the original situation. Um, that has been shifting um, quite radically, I would say, over the past years. Um, years. Still, though, um, it should be said that Arabic is essential, and nobody can do reconstruction of Semitic without Arabic at all. Um, It's very central, and it's important to have uh, good knowledge of, say, its grammar and how these things work. And I feel that uh, there's still a lot to be done there, actually, because Arabic has a so much richer grammatical tradition than we usually make use of. You see that Semiticists tend to Open up the standard reference works like Wright's Grammar or Fisher's Grammar of Arabic, which is only a subset of the things that actually get discussed by by the grammatical tradition of the of of of, of say the, the, the traditional Muslim Arab uh, Arabic tradition. Um, so there's still a lot to be gotten in there, got in there actually, and still very important to incorporate Arabic into this. Uh, but it's true, um, it has. It doesn't take the center stage in the same way that it used to. And that's probably a good thing. In the end, all the languages need to be taken as a kind of, you know, equal evidence for for the language. It's just we have so much more of Arabic as well. That's the thing, right? We have way more words. Lexicography is extremely uh, rich uh, because, you know lexicography has been done for for centuries where we don't really have that kind of richness for, say, Hebrew or Aramaic, where we're only working with very um, uh, limited resources that we, you know, just the words that are in the Bible, that's the words in, in biblical Hebrew and the words that we have for... Uh, In inscriptions of uh, Imperial Aramaic, that's the only Imperial Aramaic that we'll ever have. So we don't have these tens of thousands of words that we can work with. We don't have uh, endless accounts of strange dialectal forms like we get from the grammatical tradition. So Arabic tends to um, still be fairly important, uh, but it certainly isn't the closest to Proto-Semitic. It has many clear deviations from uh, Proto-Semitic as well, and and the question is what does it really mean to be closer to something else? How do you measure that, right? Do you measure that by how many uh, consonants do you have? Well, in that uh, perspective, Arabic indeed is very uh, archaic. Uh, we reconstruct Proto-Semitic with 29 consonants usually, um, if I'm getting the count correct, and Arabic has 28. Um, so it has one fewer consonant than Proto-Semitic. Uh, but there are other Semitic languages, such as uh, ancient South Arabian, which is, retains all of the consonants of Proto-Semitic. So, in that sense, that's actually more archaic than Arabic is. So, in that way, there's still a lot to be seen and a lot to get to be gotten from other languages as well.
0: Understood. And I'm very curious to know about how languages interact. So, when we talk about interaction in terms of, I guess, borrowing? What type of things are borrowed between languages?
1: Yeah, um, so that, that's a good question. Um, anything ultimately can be borrowed. Uh, anything you can think of can be borrowed. But uh, as you might imagine, um, words, just borrowing words, is by far the most common thing to do. Uh, and this can be for very practical reasons um so for example um i'm I'm a native dutch speaker myself uh, but when i talk about a computer in dutch i just call it a computer uh, which is just the english word for a computer well why do we have the english word for the computer well because we didn't have a machine called a computer before we got in contact with with english right and simply it was easier to borrow that word for this new technology than uh, come up with something ourselves. Um, not all languages take that strategy, but that tends to be very strongly enforced by um, language committees and these kinds of things. But borrowing through new t- by new technologies coming in, that's very, very common. So we see this a lot. And we can really see this in languages all throughout the world if they were not, if they were, if you know, they didn't have certain technologies, they would borrow a word with the technology coming along with that. So with agriculture, these kinds of things, we often see words being borrowed. Um, so that's a very common way of, of borrowing. And that, that is the typical thing of doing. And it can be, um, it can be extremely a casual kind of contact uh, you don't need to be a bilingual speaker of two languages to be able to borrow these kinds of language, uh, these kinds of words, right? Um, if you know someone has this really amazing machine, um, and you want to know, hey, what do you call it? And that person tells you it's a computer, um, you will just go, okay, well, uh, I guess I'll call it that, and you don't really need to speak the language with, with with that person or anything like that. So the points of contact don't need to be very intensive. When it comes to borrowing other things, so these are usually nouns, sometimes verbs as well, um, but mostly nouns, so just just actual objects, physical objects, these kinds of things, they tend to get borrowed, Um, but also concepts, Uh, so um, you might recognize this from, say, um, English, where a lot of... uh, scientific vocabulary or philosophical uh, vocabulary comes from Greek and Latin. Even the word philosophy, for example, is a borrowing from Greek. Well, it makes perfect sense that the word philosophy would be borrowed from Greek because that's a very important language uh, for how we think about philosophy. Um, And so these kinds of concepts, but they they tend to be nouns, things, objects, or or concepts that we can work with. Verbs. uh, can be borrowed as well do get borrowed and uh, that's pretty typical as well also without very intensive contact but when you get to more basic words things that are closer to um, the structure of the language uh, you need to have much more intensive contact so things you uh, other things you can borrow are for example pronouns uh, but that's very rare so pronouns like he she i etc Uh, those don't tend to get borrowed from one language to the other but it happens every now and then and uh, it depends on the structure of the language how easily that happens other things that could get borrowed uh, very easily actually uh, more easily probably than say pronouns is syntax so that's word order how do you construct a sentence how do you put it together these kinds of things and you see that for example Arabic of of, uh, Uzbekistan uh, which has a form of Arabic is very strongly influenced by the Turkic languages around them. The word order is much more like Turkish, these kinds of things, uh, and these kinds of uh, Turkic, I should say, not Turkish, Uzbek specifically. Um, so you see this kind of, kind of development uh, happening uh, and uh, this kind of context happening. And this tends to happen when people are strongly bilingual, when they can speak both languages fairly easily, you see these kinds of, um, Uh, assimilation into the structure of another language kind of happening. You can borrow certain forms of grammar, certain uh, derivations, these kinds of things. Uh, And we see this, um, especially I I come from a a Berberist background. Uh, Berber languages have massive influence from Arabic and have borrowed all kinds of ways of doing things and deriving words and these kinds of things just straight from Arabic and can make new words that way. Uh, And that's very typical for very intensive contact. Other things that can be borrowed but are often more difficult to prove are sounds uh, and pronunciations. And um, so sometimes two languages that are in close contact with each other but are somewhat distinct can develop certain sound changes. And then the other language just takes over that sound change. And you see them kind of moving in the same direction um, and start getting closer and closer to each other in how they pronounce things without languages ever getting closer to each other. Once again, that tends to be in a, in a situation where there's fairly close contact. So anything can be borrowed ultimately. And, and there's been a lot of work on like how much can be borrowed, when do you borrow, how does it work, these kinds of things. But this is kind of how it works. But the main thing that tends to get borrowed is vocabulary.
0: I understand. And I guess when it comes mostly to Arabic, I just have a set of, of, of a few questions with regard to that. What languages provide most of the loans into Arabic and can we anticipate the form a loan word will take into the into Arabic and how do we know the direction of borrowing that is I think you had mentioned something about a particular language being very important so how exactly can we tell that this is going from Arabic into another language as opposed to another language to Arabic
1: yeah well let's let's take this uh, one point at a time um so when we look at what language say influence Arabic mostly, I would say probably the most important is Aramaic. People tend to use the word Aramaic and Syriac somewhat interchangeably. Um, I would advise against that, so I won't do that here. Syriac is a form of Aramaic. It's a dialect of Aramaic, a very important liturgical dialect of Aramaic, very important for um, Eastern Christianity. Uh, Aramaic is a more general uh, language group certain languages within that group and Aramaic Aramaic has been a very very important influence uh, especially in say early classical Arabic so the Quran has a lot of a lot of uh, Aramaic loan words but besides this we, we find several others as well um, uh, so Greek is a, a pretty important uh Donor of words into early classical Arabic, um, and especially say um, Arabic of the seventh century. Once again, the Quran has quite a few uh, Greek loanwords. Uh, this is in part due to uh, the Eastern Roman Empire uh, using primarily Greek as a language of, of, of administration. So you see that a lot of words come in through that. Persian is another very obvious one that. Actually starts so other uh, different from the other two examples that I just gave where Aramaic and and, and Greek are pretty important donors uh, say around the turn of of say you know the first century history Um, Persian is less important although there's already some loanwords from Persian in the Quran for example but uh, tends to be ends up becoming more important as Persian becomes an important literary language and persons start playing a fairly important intellectual role, say, in, in the Muslim world. Um, so that's another example. Uh, and then Ethiopic. Ethiopic long words appear in the Quran already. And um, also that that kind of influence almost completely drops away after the Quran. So there's really a, a, a real difference between before Islam and after Islam, like what kinds of words are coming in, what kinds of words are being borrowed. And that, of course, in part just has to do with what is the relative um, prestige of these different languages. Uh, languages tend to borrow from the prestigious language, and after you know the rise of Islam, uh, Arabic became the prestigious language, which made it a lot less necessary for that language to start borrowing uh, from other languages. So you see kind of a shift in that. Um, and so that's, that's, that's kind of the, the, the main influence. You can look for others. Um, Hebrew might show up, uh, in, in, in say, um, early classical Arabic, but I think almost always through a intermediary of, of Aramaic, um, if we can see it at all, or through an intermediary of Ethiopic, specifically classical Ethiopic, so as, as we call it, um, and uh, when it comes to the question um, how do we identify the direction of loanwords, words, um, that can be very difficult, uh, especially within the Semitic languages, different from many other language families that we look at. Uh, the Semitic languages, it's not just Arabic that's very archaic. Semitic languages in general tend to be very archaic and say you know, if we would assume that, that Arabic borrowed the words for house bait uh, from Hebrew, um, and if, that, well, let's assume that happened, there would be no way to tell it apart from a inherited word. They would look exactly the same, and it's just impossible to tell whether it happened or not. Um, that's a real issue, uh, and that's an issue that is not as easily encountered with, say, a borrowing from French into English. It's very clear when we're looking at a, at a French borrowing into English. Uh, but with these kinds of words it's difficult. So how do you go about doing that when it's difficult to see because these languages change so little so they are have such compatible sound systems that's very easy to borrow? Um, what we look for are a couple of things. So one thing is um, structure, structural forms of the language. So, if we have a word that is not really analyzable um, in one language, but it's perfectly understandable in another language, we tend to uh, conclude that, well, clearly it must come from the language in which it is analyzable and came into the language uh, where it isn't analyzable. Um, So, for example, uh, you know, uh, when we look at Spanish, and Spanish talks about uh, Alhambra, uh, that the the beautiful, beautiful fortress in Andalusia, um, that word doesn't mean anything to a Spanish speaker, uh, but through an Arabic speaker, it will be uh, recognizable as al right, the red one, and because it's made of red stone, and so clearly, well, we see the al in that word, right, the definite article, uh, we see that it has a structure which is typically Arabic, so that word is analyzable as Arabic, but it's not analyzable as Spanish, That clearly allows us to conclude that the word came from Arabic into Spanish. We can do similar things when looking at um, uh, borrowings in Arabic and Aramaic, these kinds of questions, Um, although it can be much more difficult. But an example of this is in Aramaic, uh, there's a way of making abstract nouns, abstract derivations, by placing this suffix ut at the end of words. And an example of this uh, that we find in the Quran is uh, malakut, uh, kingdom. And that clearly has something to do with the words uh, malik, king. Uh, But this ut, you don't normally make words uh, in Arabic by placing ut after a root and then you get a kind of abstract word. Uh, You would maybe expect a iya kind of suffix or something along those lines instead. So the fact that we see this ut makes it look foreign within the system of Arabic. While it wouldn't look foreign in the the system of Aramaic languages and Aramaic dialects, whatever we want to call them, um, which clearly shows that the directionality is from Aramaic into Arabic. Um, So that's one important way of doing it. Uh, That's how we see some of these directionalities. Other things that we can do is we sometimes, uh, sometimes we're we're simply looking at words that are words for technologies, which don't really make much sense to be inherited. Say um, in Arabic, right, the word to write, ketaba. Well, we know that at a Proto-Arabic stage, nobody was writing. So they can't have had a verb that means to write. Um, But it uses the exact same root that uh, Hebrew uses, Aramaic uses. Uh, And all of those just mean to write and it's the same root, these kinds of things. And there it's very difficult to be sure um, what the direction of borrowing is, but one must have borrowed it from the other. They didn't all come up with using exactly this word with these uh, root consonants. Um, by by themselves, it must it can't be independent in that sense. So then there must be some kind of borrowing going on. One of these must have come up with the bright idea of using this root for the verb to write, and it is probably the one that introduced uh, the technology of writing, which is a technology, and that's a technology you borrow. Um, there it can be more difficult to talk about the directionality. We tend to think of it there as Um, from Aramaic to Arabic. First of all, because uh, the Arabic script does derive from the Aramaic script, so it makes sense that way. And second, because uh, Aramaic in general has just been written for a much longer time than uh, Arabic. Um, So that's another way of doing it. A final way of doing it, but one that hardly ever actually becomes useful uh, within the Semitic context, but can be used, is you look for certain uh, sound developments. So, when we look at the history of languages, we see how... So, when we look at the history of languages, we see how languages change over time and they undergo certain sound changes Um, and the sound changes tend to be quite predictable and regular. So, when we see a certain word and it looks like it hasn't undergone a certain sound change, Uh, or maybe it underwent a sound change, which is not typical for Arabic, but typical for a different language, we tend to conclude, well, that must mean it was borrowed from this different language, and that's why it has this kind of uh, development. And uh, that is a pretty technical kind of thing to look at, and it's very difficult to actually see this because Semitic languages tend to be quite conservative in this regard, uh, but it allows us to sometimes see the direction of borrowing because we see a certain development has taken place, uh, which shouldn't have taken place. And we know, well, that it must have come in from this language where we do know that development takes place or the other way around. Does, okay. it, answer, yeah, does it answer all the questions? I think. It,
0: I, yes. It does. I, I There's just one more I had to ask about. How can we anticipate the form a loan word would take in the recipient language? And, and how exactly do we tell from which language the word is coming from if for example there's a word that we know is in greek how can we tell that it comes from how can we know rather that it comes from greek into arabic as opposed to greek into syriac and then into arabic
1: yeah good question um so first so anticipating um how a a word is borrowed as a general rule of thumb and and this this can be unclear every now and then but but as general rule of thumb if a language has a sound that is equivalent to the sound that appears in another language, it would just borrow that sound. Um, the moment that you have a sound in say the donor language and the receiving language doesn't have that sound. That's where it gets kind of unclear what should be happening. Uh, then usually we assume they would take the closest sound, um, but it's not always clear what the closest sound is. And this is, we're, we're, we're kind of um, fortunate in this case because Arabic has such a rich sound system. Um, it tends to be able to express um, the sounds of other Semitic languages quite nicely because it tends to also have them. And in that case, it's quite easy to draw, say, the equivalence between one and the other and, and, and say something uh, useful about that. Um, And this is actually one of the reasons why I I have been writing about um, Aramaic long words into Arabic uh, and have been arguing, well, if we say that they come from Syriac, uh, we kind of end up with an issue, an issue of chronology. Uh, So Syriac being a subgroup of Aramaic, and certainly the words that have been identified as Aramaic are definitely Aramaic. But I'm not so sure whether they're Syriac. They don't really look Syriac. And uh, that's an issue that needs to be solved and could be solved in a bunch of different ways, but there's some ways to go about this. But uh, going back to this one example that I just gave for kingdom, Malakut. Well, Malakut in Syriac is uh, pronounced Malchoth and uh, using a kh and a th sound. Well... um, if Arabic were to borrow the word malchuth or um from Syriac, it could just borrow the kh with a kh, or the kh with a kha, I suppose, um, and the th with a th, but, it, but instead it is borrowing the kh as a k and the th as a t. And that seems very unlikely. Why would it be borrowing? Um, Sounds which it actually has. The language clearly has those sounds, but is not borrowing them uh, with that sound. That is an issue, and so we tend to. That's that's kind of the general rule of thumb. If the language has the sound, they will borrow it with that sound. If it doesn't have the sound, it gets a bit more unclear, and this makes these directionality things quite useful. So that's how we anticipate um, what a word will look like, and and so. That's very often how, how we play this game. Um, we say, look, if this word would have come in through this language, we would expect it to look like this. But it looks like this instead. So clearly something else is going on. Um, and that kind of feeds into your question about um, Greek and Aramaic and Arabic. How, how do these Greek words end up in Arabic? Do they go through Aramaic or not, for example? I just got tons of other examples that we could choose, but this is a pretty good one. Um, and yeah, um, that's exactly the kind of thing we would do. Um, does Do the adaptations that, uh, the, the phonetic adaptations that the word has gone through, do they make sense from a perspective that they came from Greek straight into Arabic? Or would it make f- more sense if it first went through Aramaic before it ended up into Arabic? Um and I'm trying to think if there's a good example where that is very clearly the case. Well, I can't think of one right now. Um, sadly. Uh the issue with this, so we, we, we tend to we tend to do um we tend to play these kinds of games, kind of look, okay, what direction would it take, how how, how would that go, how would that be borrowed, these kinds of things. Uh, but it can be very difficult, especially in the case of uh, Greek and Aramaic and Arabic. Uh, that can be a pretty difficult question. It's not always easy to see that directionality. Um, we tend to have opinions just from historical perspective, which is also how we often uh, argue these kinds of things. But that's not the strongest argument, um, at least for linguists. We want to have a purely linguistic answer and not a historical answer that's answered by history. We want to, ideally, we want historical linguistics to um, come to the same conclusions about history as, say, history would, and not use history to make our arguments. That's not quite as pure. Uh, But we would tend to say, like, look, um, we know that a lot of philosophical and especially religious works, of course, were first translated into Aramaic from Greek, uh, and only much later Uh, ended up in Arabic, and that just makes that directionality more likely, uh, because we don't have any evidence of, um, say, uh, Greek texts being translated straight into Arabic, um, as far as we can tell uh, from texts, while a lot of, say, Christian Arabic texts tend to be translations from Syriac, and the Syriac then tends, tends to be translations from Greek. Uh, and we can see that kind of uh, directionality. So then we often argue with with these kinds of you know historical facts in mind, the directionality. Um, but ideally, you want to argue for this directionality, not just on our assumptions. We want to challenge those assumptions with, with historical linguistics. And then we try to look, okay, how would this be, word be borrowed in one language? How would it be borrowed in another language? Can we, through that, uh, determine the directionality? Um, but that tends to be very difficult it can be, it's usually not easy to really see that, Um, although in principle it's possible. And in languages that are less similar to each other, um, this is clearly possible, but uh, with Semitic languages that tend to be so close to one another, um, it can be very difficult to really pull that apart in a kind of convincing way.
0: And I imagine this next question might also have a similar answer. How exactly can we tell the, the date? of a certain borrowing.
1: Yeah, Um, so we can do some of that. Um, So I just gave you um, this example, we'll we'll use it again, I get to exploit this example a lot. So the Malakut example, um, if we look at Aramaic in around the third century, and we luckily just have a very good third century CE, I should say. we have a pretty good written record, so we can learn something about these languages uh, quite easily. Um, we can be pretty certain already that by that time, say, or by the time that Syriac becomes an important religious language, um, it has undergone all these developments. So, from Malakoots, first went to uh, malakhut shifting both the the, the k to a and the t to a th, and then dropping the vowel uh, after the kh. So. Malachuth becomes malchuth. Um And we have a pretty good idea of when those developments happened in uh, the Aramaic languages in general and quite specifically in, in Syriac. So when we see that a word is clearly borrowed from Aramaic but hasn't undergone those changes, it must have been borrowed before that time. And so that's generally how we... Um, tend to uh, pull apart. When does this happen? We see have there any have there been any sound changes that would have affected this word, which um, have not taken place in this word, while in the language that we see it has taken place. And going by that, we can usually figure out what direction uh, these things have taken. Um, and this allows us, for example, uh, and I hope. So a good example will actually pop into my mind in a second for Greek, but we can see this for Greek as well, because Greek also has a bunch of very salient uh, sound changes happening and they happen around um, the time that, that that Greek is in contact with Arabic uh, which is a, it has a very, so it's so-called aspirates so the what we now call the, 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 the phi, the chi and the theta or the theta um, used to be pronounced as a, a t, a k, and a, a p, while in modern Greek, as you may know and others may know, uh, it's now pronounced as a, f, a, f and a, kh, a, f, a th, and a ch, or a th, and ch. And we see the earliest borrowings from, from, from Greek uh, into Arabic, but also transcriptions of Greek names in uh in say the savietic inscriptions, so early pre-islamic arabic we see that this shift hasn't taken place yet so we can say something about when did this happen when did they come in and these kinds of this helps us kind of establish directionality uh, and establish how these things uh, happen so this this is how we try to date them um but you have to be very lucky to get a absolute date out of these things so we can often do relative dates so we say well it certainly happened before this shift, but we don't always know when that shift happened. So we know that shift must have taken place after that shift, and it must have taken place before that shift, because if we move these things around, we get the wrong forms. Um, But knowing exactly, pinning down in time when a certain shift happens, that can be quite difficult. And um, so that is kind of a... a, um, Yeah, how we we go about trying to find these these
0: solutions. Thank you so much for that, Doctor. I wanted to ask, how do the conclusions of modern linguistic analyses differ from the conclusions by Muslim linguists with regard to the development of Arabic script and its grammar?
1: Mm Yeah. So... There's a couple of things that are are quite interesting. We'll we'll first do the scripts, and then then we'll look into grammar. Um, So it's it's been a little controversial for for a while, but I think it's become quite clear now um, that the Arabic scripts really did develop from the Nabataean Aramaic scripts. And that is very clear, obvious. uh, We know what happened. Uh, We can really see it happen which is really cool uh, this is uh, a fantastic work by uh, Leila Narme, who has been uh, basically been mapping out these Nabataean inscriptions from say the, the post nabataean kingdom uh, period uh, and you see the centuries leading up to uh, to to say uh, the 7th century you can really see the script morph more and more into the arabic script and we really have now a more or less continuous record of uh, Nabataean Aramaic script becoming the Arabic script. Um, and even within within uh, a, the Western tradition, it's often been a little controversial whether that's actually what happened. I think most people are on board with this conclusion now, but some have argued that it actually developed from the Syriac Aramaic script, which likewise is an Aramaic script. Um, and like Arabic has... A very cursive look so it clearly has the same kind of straight baseline on on the bottom of the line with kind of things popping up on on the top Um, it's less clear actually in a Syriac script, script than it is in the Arabic script but nevertheless they have a very similar character they have this kind of flowy together script thing and this kind of initial similarity a lot of people saw this and saw this kind of as evidence well clearly Arabic must have developed from Syriac most people have abandoned this by now uh, and have just seen this as parallel developments. Both of these forms of Aramaic started being written with ink on papyrus or parchment, and that caused both of them to become more and more cursive and take on um, a similar looking shape uh, from a similar original origin, which is the Imperial Aramaic script. Um when we look at what what, what Muslim scholars uh, say about this, if they talk about the Arabic script at all, is first it, it's not you see that, that that say, the medieval Muslim scholars, when they talk about these things, they're clearly talking about, uh, about it at a period much later where they don't necessarily understand how this happened anymore. And a lot of it actually does look like fantasy. So one thing that comes up a lot is that they say that the Arabic script must have come from Hira. Um, and I believe uh, Hira should have just been using Syriac, so it seems like they're saying that it comes from a Syriac script, which might be what inspired uh, uh, Western scholars to first claim this as well. But that's clearly not what happened. And clearly, if anything, um, uh, the Arabic script comes from the Southern Levant. And uh, so there's a a, a real um, difference there in how we think about these things. and then many other things. So, so we get reports um, about the dotting on on the uh, on the Arabic letters. So, if we look at early Quranic manuscripts, but also early papyri, and definitely if we look at pre-Islamic Arabic, we hardly ever see dots that can distinguish certain letters. So, in the Arabic script, the ba and the ta are the exact same letter, except that the ba has a little dot below and the ta has two dots on top. Um, and we get reports um, that uh, these were invented by a somewhat um, uh, mythological early grammarians. So uh, this dotting is often attributed to Ad uh, duali And um, that is fairly clear not what has happened. Uh, this seems to stem from the idea that the Qur'an Uh, when it was first uh, standardized by by Uthman, uh, the third caliph, uh, was completely without dots. There's really not a lot of evidence that it didn't have any of these dots to to distinguish these letters. Um, It's quite clear that this system had been invented already by that time, because we have papyri and inscriptions. We have a papyrus from 23 Hijri, which is probably a little bit before the standardization of the Quran, Um, which already has some of these dots it doesn't use them very often it uses them sparingly and that's also what we see in say 7th century Quranic manuscripts it uses these dots very sparingly but it doesn't not use them at all Uh, they were clearly invented already and they clearly already function in a way that basically we know them today there's some tiny differences the marking of the qaf and the the qaf and the fa' tends to be a bit unclear but in general it it is the same system (coughs) Pardon me. Um, so, th- this dotting system was already around. Uh, as early as we can see, in the Islamic period, the dots existed, really. Um, before Islam, we just don't have the kinds of documents where we could see them. We don't see them in pre-Islamic inscriptions, but we don't really see them in Islamic inscriptions either. It's very rare to see continental dotting in inscriptions, uh, while in the papyri, they are they appear in any in any papyrus you'll find a, a some amount of dotting. In any early Quranic manuscript you'll find some amount of dotting. It can be very few. Sometimes there's only four dots on a whole page, but they're always there. Um, so there the, the kind of history that is constructed about the history of the script and the development of the script just really is not in line with the historical evidence that we have found at all, which suggests that they don't really seem to have a historical memory of what happened with the script. Um, so that's an interesting kind of deviation from this. Um, when it comes to grammar, um, yeah... The, here also something interesting happens. So most of what the the, the Arab grammarians reports um, is they they report a lot of data, a, a lot of material. And I'm, I've been working a lot, especially with with the work of Syboid, the first great Arab grammarian, at least uh, from whom we have work. Um, and I've been working a lot with uh, the work of al Farah, another important grammarian, uh, a little bit later, but they're m- m- more or less contemporaries who were born around the same time. Cibowai just died a lot earlier. Um, and if you look at this, they, they record a vast amount of linguistic data. And some of that linguistic data is essential uh, for our understanding of uh, the linguistic history of Arabic because a lot of this is lost. So if we look at uh, classical Arabic as we find it in our in our standard textbooks today it is really much more limited than what these grammarians are describing. But also what we see in the modern dialects of Arabic today um, is in many ways much more limited in variation and in other ways much more diverse but in many ways much more limited in variation than what we find among the grammarians. But still what the grammarians are collecting is to some extent selective. Um, and what do I mean by that? They were clearly interested in a certain type of Arabic. And this certain type of Arabic was the Arabic of the people whose Arabic could be rel- relied upon. Uh, whatever that means that has usually been translated as, um, the Bedouins. Um, whether that's what they're talking about, I don't know, and I don't know if Bedouins really spoke like this. Um, what clearly plays into this is uh, the language of poetry, and the language that was being used for poetry was very important. And um, so one thing that is absolutely essential to Arabic that the grammarians and medieval grammarians describe is Arab and Tanween, That is the final short vowels on verbs and nouns, and uh, the final ends on nouns. And this is a very important kind of grammatical system. This is essential. It's almost... Um, it's, it's usually considered almost identical to Arabic grammar. Doing Arab is being uh, making proper Arabic, good Arabic. And that's even in the word Arab means to make something Arabic. Uh, so you need that. You need these final short vowels. Now the question, the big question is, what is the position of those of those final short vowels uh, within the history of Arabic? And that's where we get something strange. If you look at these early grammarians, we see that they um, they really don't consider dialects that wouldn't have that kind of system. And this has often led to to uh, people to think um, that. Arabic at this time always had this complete system, that was the only kind of Arabic that was around. That's how people spoke, but that really isn't that clear, and why isn't that clear has really only been getting clearer in the past uh, years, basically. Um, So now that we have so much more uh, Arabic from from the pre-Islamic period to look at, we see a very different picture. We see, for example, through careful examination of Arabic written in Greek transcription, that there were clearly forms of Arabic that lacked this kind of um, grammatical system, which was considered so essential to uh, the Arab grammarians. Um, And that's already gone in the pre-Islamic period, hundreds of years, even centuries before uh, the grammarians were active. Um, If we look at Safiitic, which is clearly some form of Arabic, it doesn't have tanween, which would have been written in that script. They would write uh, a little noon sign, so to speak, an end sign to mark it. Um, and a certain other, other uh, developments that we can see that allow us to conclude that certain f- other final vowels were also completely gone. Um, and the same thing is even true in the Islamic period. We can find some evidence for this. So the uh, Damascus psalm fragment, uh, which is a... Well, a translation of the Psalms into Arabic but written in Greek letters. Um, and this is a, a monograph that uh, Ahmed Al Jalad is working on right now, uh, or it's not working on, it's in final proof, so it will come out soon, hopefully. Um, this is a very early translation uh, from Greek uh, into Arabic using Greek letters. And the Arabic that shows up in this, and this is really from around the time that the grammarians were active, so say. Um, uh, mid 8th uh, maybe uh, early 9th century um and uh, so th- this is the time it's from but if we look at the Arabic that's in there it doesn't have these final short vowels it doesn't have the tenween, it doesn't look anything like that and so clearly that kind of Arabic was around and there's many reasons to think that that Arabic was um if not the normal way of speaking, it was at least a normal way of speaking for a huge amount of people who spoke some form of Arabic. But if you would go by the grammarians, you would never know this even existed. And it takes centuries for them to even acknowledge that they don't speak exactly like they write or like they say you should write. And um, that even basically uh, you know, continues until today, the kind of um, acknowledgement that spoken dialect is not just some bad way of speaking uh, classical Arabic, but it's just a different way of speaking a language, um, is hardly ever acknowledged. And um, so there's a real discrepancy there. So what are the grammarians doing? They're clearly describing something, and it's clearly um, informative for our understanding of the history of Arabic. But at the same time, it's extremely limited. and has a very specific scope. You need to have this system of case vowels and tannuin, um to be able co- to be considered to be uh, discussed at all. So what's going on there? There's a real puzzle here where the grammarians seem to tell a different story from what the actual historical documents from the time seem to tell uh, or even historical documents from earlier than that. Um, so that's a real puzzle and something that um, has been getting a lot of attention lately.
0: How was Arabic spoken in the pre-modern times and how were letters pronounced? Are there differences of opinion when it comes to the pronunciation of, of some of the letters?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so once again, I mean, these things are, are, are difficult to see and we have to uh, do as, as, as much as we can uh, to, to reconstruct these things. Um, but we sometimes get get lucky and and get nice things out of this so um so one thing that that especially when we get to the islamic period and let's let's stick to the islamic period for now uh, because there's plenty of stuff to discuss there we, we we only have one lens to kind of look at these things and that's through the literary sources And literary sources have a very specific focus which is not necessarily interested in how people actually spoke um, so while it might be controversial, I don't think it should be controversial that in the 7th century people didn't speak exactly as the grammarians are describing it. Um, it's certainly true that, you know, once you get to the 10th or 11th or 12th century, they're not speaking like they're writing anymore. It's clearly very far removed from that. Um, and um, but an acknowledgement that that is the case is, is quite rare. There are some works that will tell you how to speak uh, properly and what's wrong and these kinds of things. And these are very important things to reconstruct kind of a historical dialectology of these uh, of this language uh, in much the same way that we do this for Latin, for example. At some point, uh, we get these uh, books in Latin that say you shouldn't be saying, uh, you know, the word like this, we should be saying it like this instead. You shouldn't be saying... Uh, uh, as you know, you should be saying as uh, you should be saying as No, you should be saying as you know, and these kinds of things. You get very similar things at some point within Arabic, although much less, actually. And these allow us to tell a lot of stuff about how people are actually speaking, what needs to be corrected, what doesn't need to be corrected, these kinds of questions. Um, and every now and then, you know, we get very rare insights. So I believe that in the 10th century, I forgot what the source is exactly, but we get reports that... Um, in Baghdad, uh, people are pronouncing the Ra as a Ghayn, and that is indeed what we see. Um, it's not really the case anymore in, in Baghdad today, um, but Christians uh, Christian Baghdadis still speak this way. They pronounce the Ra as a Ghayn, and Jews that used to be there uh, also pronounce the Ra as a Ghayn. And uh, that seems to just be the general way of speaking in Baghdad already in the 10th century. So that's a really cool insight. We know that that's the case in, say, some forms of modern Baghdadi, and we have a historical source mentioning this explicitly. And every now and then you get these kinds of tidbits. Um, And then one of the other things that we get um, which are very important for understanding how are letters pronounced, how are things developing is the kinds of spelling mistakes that people make or the things that they are uncertain about. So, one of the big um, points uh, that shows up a lot, and Uh, especially in uh, recitation of the Quran, can be quite controversial, is how uh, the Daud and the va should be pronounced. Now, the bad, I'm pronouncing it wrong. (laughs) Uh, At least I would say I'm pronouncing it wrong, although this is a pretty common way of pronouncing it in Quranic recitation today. But it's clearly not the kind of sound that if we look at the early grammarians, what the grammarians are describing, if we look at how Sibuai describes the bod, it was probably something close to the um, which is quite distinct, but it's very close to the Daud. Um, and this sound, um, well, there's still some people that teach this in Quranic recitation to pronounce it like this. Um, it's kind of hard to explain the mechanism exactly, but it's a lateral fricative that is, the sound escapes past the sides of your tongue with a kind of friction rather than that you completely close off uh, the sound. So you can also keep it on longer. Well, you can't do that with a dod. If you try to make a long dod, you just do dod and nothing comes out. But well, if you do the pronunciation of CBI describes, you get. Dod. Um, and so you can keep that on as long as you like, and you can kind of hear that friction happening. Um, so that's one uh, where you kind of see a development happening. Because what's interesting about this is that in the vast majority of the modern Arabic dialects, the Badd and the va have merged completely into the va And that is a development um, which seems to happen quite early already because people start mixing them up. So if you look at papyri from, say, the first or the second century Uh, you already see that every now and then they write a thought instead of the or or they write a thought where they should have written a thought, which means they didn't really know what the difference between the two was. They knew that they were supposed to make the difference, but didn't really know which went where because it sounded exactly the same to these speakers. Um, So that's how you get some insight into well, if they make these kinds of spelling mistakes, clearly these sounds must be very close. And um, so that's one way of, of, of kind of figuring these things out. Um, And other things, of course, that we can do is look at how they're transcribed in other languages. So, um, especially in the 7th century, we're very lucky to have um, the administration not changing language when uh, the Islamic conquests happen. Um, And Greek continues to be used uh, for example, in Egypt, and they keep their administration, but all of a sudden they have to, you know, write the names of the new governors uh, as Arabic names and some of the new people that lived there, etc. So they write in Greek letters the Arabic um, as it is pronounced, as they heard it. And using that, we can learn a lot, because one thing that Greek has going over the Arabic script is vowels. So we can learn what the vowels were like, how they developed Uh, how they differed from what we knew. And uh, that is a very important source for kind of information that we can get. Uh, We can do similar things uh, with Coptic. A lot of Coptic administration happens as well, still in the early Islamic period, and they also transcribe Arabic names. And from there, we can once again learn other things. So combining these things, we can kind of figure out how is the language actually spoken around this period by these people? And is there a kind of system going on here? Does this differ from what we know from the classical sources? Yeah, sometimes it does differ from what we know from the classical sources. Uh, In some ways, it's much closer to um, Arabic as it is spoken today, but sometimes it's also more different uh, from Arabic that is spoken today. Other insights that we can get is, for example, from Judeo-Arabic writing, that is Arabic written by Jews in the Hebrew scripts. And they, especially early, early period, so say up until the 10th century, they tended to use the Hebrew script and just write phonetically what they heard. And so we can see very nicely which letters they, of the Hebrew script they associated with whatever sounds um, they heard in Arabic, so to speak. Um, So this is how we kind of figure out um, the development and the pronunciation of these kinds of letters. That can be quite difficult. and uh, this brings us to, to the other point, are there any differences of opinion uh, when it comes to proper pronunciation? And so, yes, there are. And even today, there are differences of, of opinion on how uh, to pronounce things. Um, so the the dawd is a very typical um, point of disagreements in proper pronunciation, but really only proper pronunciation of, of the Quran. So we're talking about the here. here. Um, but other things that you see is uh, discussions on how to pronounce the Ra, um, which I think Siboy is very clear that it's supposed to be pronounced as a Ra, but you will very often hear in, in a Quranic recitation, you get these, um, we try this, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, Rahim, instead of Rahmanirrahim, um, Rahim, without this kind of trill sound, but this Ra sound. And um, that is, once again, a point of disagreement. You see that there are reciters that do both. um, But that's one of these things uh, that happens. Um, And there, you know, you try to, at least that's what I do, going going at this as a linguist. um, I look at what do these early sources, what do the sources describe, what they say, how can we understand this within a modern linguistic uh, framework, and what sound does it most likely represent. that means I, I sometimes end up having different opinions than, say, uh, people who have had proper training in the correct pronunciation of the Quran. And uh, they tend to have different opinions on different grounds. Uh, they say, well, look, this is how my teacher taught it, and my teacher learned it from this person, and that person learned it from this person, and that person swears that it was pronounced that way, and et cetera, et cetera. And the kind of way that this kind of decision is made. Um, makes sense uh, but it means that I tend to have a different opinion. A linguist tend to have a different opinion on what the proper pronunciation of some sounds is compared to what is currently popular in um, Quranic recitation. At the same time very often when I find myself in disagreement with the majority opinion you do find reciters that do actually follow the thing that I think is the reasonable interpretation of the text. Um, so that's how these things go about um, Development of, of say pronunciation uh, of the proper pronunciation, specifically of the Quran.
0: Understood. And as we transition our into a discussion of the Quran, uh, perhaps I, I think it's important to ask uh, a couple more questions just on on this topic. How does the Arabic of the Quran differ from classical Arabic, and what's the relationship between the development of the study of Arabic and Arabic grammar and the so-called variant readings of the Quran. So that's
1: a very good question. Uh, the, uh, the the question of you know how how does Arabic of the Quran interrelate with classical Arabic, um, and how does how these the, the, the reading traditions or the variant readings um, interact with this question? Development of Arabic is basically the the, the main topic of research right now uh, that I'm working on. Um, and it's it's a difficult question. I mean, I'm writing a whole whole monograph on it, so I am afraid I won't be able to do it justice uh, just now, but I'll, I'll try to give kind of an idea. So the first question is, um, how does Arabic of the Quran, how is the Arabic of the Quran different from classical Arabic? And one of the main questions is, is what, what does classical Arabic mean in this case? Um, that seems like a very obvious answer, but it's actually not. Um, because there's not really a definition of classical Arabic. And as a, as a, as a, the, the definition of classical Arabic that I tend to work with is whatever the grammarians call classical Arabic or whatever the, uh, the grammarians describe that is what classical Arabic is. And, um, that's quite useful, but at the same time, it skips over a lot of stuff. Because um, what does what do the Arab grammarians do? They look at poetry, they look at uh, the Hadith, um, and they look at the Quran. And they take all of these three together and describe whatever they find in those corpora, basically. And the speech of the Arab, whatever that means, Arabs in general. But clearly not only Arabs whose Arabic could be relied upon, um, and we don't know exactly when it was to be relied upon. Um, so these these corpora um, are all being discussed, and they all have variation in them, um, and the question, and that is classical Arabic. Well, if that's classical Arabic, um, nobody really uses that complete variety of Arabic anymore when writing Arabic today. It's much more restricted than what uh, the grammarians allow. Um, And the other thing that makes this difficult is okay, once we say all of this is classical Arabic, um, we tend to skip over a very important question. Well, if all of it is classical Arabic, does that mean they are exactly the same? Are they just clearly the same language well clearly they're related they're obviously related they may have been mutually intelligible and understood each other but they might be dialects of one another they might be slightly different from one another and they do report a lot of dialectal differences between these things but they all treat it as arabic but can we say that there's a specific difference between um, these corpora Um, and some of these things are noticeable so uh, one very typical thing, something that indeed even the Arab grammarians uh, comment upon, is that the Qur'an for uh, that will only use dhalika. Well, okay, you can use dhalika, that's fine. Uh, but if you look at the what the Arab grammarians uh, report even more, is that you can also say dhalika. And that is either, sometimes they make a difference between the meaning of these two, um or they um, they simply uh, say that they're the same, especially early grammarians say that they're the same, and one is of one dialect and the other is the other dialect. If you look at poetry, poetry will use both forms indiscriminately. They'll use verka and they'll use dalika, and uh, depending on what the meter needs. But if you look at the Quran, it's very clear. They always use dalika. It's a very clear system. There's no exception from that. It's just that. So if we say, well, it's classical Arabic, yes, I mean, this is part of classical Arabic, right? It's a subset of classical Arabic, but you can write a rule for classical Arabic and write a description of, uh, oh, sorry, you can write a description of Quranic Arabic, which would be different than the description you would write if you would only take poetry as your corpus. Um, So there is a grammatical difference between what happens in poetry and what happens in the Quran. And that is basically... um, my focus what do we get if we actually look at the Quranic text itself what can we learn from the Quranic text and uh, specifically what can we learn from the language of the Quran if we look at if we assume we have no idea how this text is pronounced we don't know what is going on we don't have any sources if let's say we had just dug up this text And it's written there. We, for some reason, uh, uh, Islam hadn't caught on, and we didn't have any recollection of Arabic, and we now had this text. How will we read this? How will we figure out how it was pronounced, what was going on? And would we come to the same conclusions as, say, what the tradition says the Quran is to be pronounced? And I would be inclined to say the answer to that is no. No. we can learn things. So we have a written text, a very well-preserved written text, which we might be able to talk about some more uh, in a little bit. A very well-preserved written text with a way of spelling, which is quite different from what we associate with classical Arabic writing of later periods, um, has many strange spellings that make you wonder, okay, what's going on here? What what pronunciation were they they going for? Um, And... um, Besides this, a well-preserved text, which we can say all kinds of things about it, spelling, and spellings are very important. Spellings tell us a lot about how things were pronounced. Certain sounds that were not being mixed up, certain sounds that were being mixed up, these kinds of questions teach us a lot about um, how a language is pronounced. And that's how we usually go about text if we don't have anything else. Um, and we can look at rhyme. Uh, we're very lucky that the Quranic uh text is a rhymed text for the vast majority of its text and we can look which which words can rhyme with each other and which words cannot rhyme with each other and that can actually teach us something about how these words were actually pronounced and then we find yes there are some some differences um, there certainly some differences between Classical Arabic as it is usually conceived of today, which I tend to call textbook classical Arabic, the Arabic that we learn in our schools, the kind of classical Arabic that feeds into what we call modern standard Arabic, so the Arabic that is used in modern writing today, and say newsreaders and these kinds of things. Um, It's quite different from that. Um, It has certain things which fall easily within what um, the Arab grammarians themselves consider absolutely acceptable. So it seems quite clear from looking at the rhyme, looking at how the Quran spells words, that it didn't have the Hamza. And Hamza is um, the sound in English, uh-oh, sound, uh oh, sound, which shows up, say, in uh, Arabic, Yasalu, uh, he asks. Um, and in a Quran that's clearly spelled as Yasalu, Uh, or yasal, something along those lines, but missing that Hamza. And um, if you look at Siboy and look at how he describes the Hamza, he says, you know, well, in classical Arabic or in the Arabic I'm describing, you can either choose to keep the Hamza or drop it out. So clearly that falls within um, Siboy's conceptualization of what classical Arabic is supposed to be. But if today you would start writing Arabic and you would start saying Yasalu instead of Yasalu, people would probably correct you, because that is not how you're supposed to speak classical Arabic today. So this makes it a very difficult question. It's like, well, there's lots of things, actually, um, that are considered proper Arabic, according to the Arab grammarians, which are not considered proper anymore. And this kind of feeds into the question of what's going on with the development of Arabic and the variant readings of the Quran. So let me uh, transition to that. So um, the Quran, as we know it today, um, is known by, let's say, ten reading traditions, with each two transmissions. And what does that mean exactly? The text, as we have it, the, the Quranic text, as we have it, the early text that we have, is somewhat ambiguous how certain words should be pronounced and. Um, these reading traditions tend to have different opinions on how certain words are to be read. Um, sometimes this can be a difference in meaning. So, a word like, I don't know, uh, yes, hello. Uh, he asks is read as uh, she asks instead. Um, that's one way that we see variation happening. And um, that is the exact same skeleton, but only the dotting has a little difference. Sometimes vowels live, uh, differ a little bit, and that leads to different uh, different meanings. And there's a sort of a discussion, to what extent is are these differences all variation that existed before the standardization of the text and was just kind of incorporated because the text allowed it? To what extent are these later interpretations of the text um, that is a controversial issue, which I luckily don't need to get into too much, um, because what I'm more interested in is the linguistic side of things. Because these reading traditions, so there are ten different reading traditions um, with two transmissions each. Most people today, when they have a Quran in, uh, you know, for themselves, it tends to be uh, in the transmission of hafs of the reading of Asim. And that is by far the most popular reading today. Uh, I'll just call this a reading. It can be called a qira'ah as well. Uh, that's a classical Arabic word for it. i use the word reading here. And um, Hafs is only one of 20 readings, basically, in this sense. Um, another important one that we still uh, see in North Africa use a lot is warsh. The transmitter warsh of the reader um uh, but also Qalun of the reader Nafi' uh, both of these are still adhered to quite uh, a lot in North Africa so millions of speakers use it and the differences between these readers so there's besides so these are two readers so Asim and Nafya. there's a eight other ones you can look them up yourself if you're interested um, These differ from each other, not just in word choice uh, and not even primarily in word choice. Uh, There's a couple of places where where readers disagree what the word should be and how it should be pronounced, uh, what what its meaning should be. But the vast majority of the differences of the reading traditions come down to linguistic differences. It comes down to whether uh, you say they as hom or as homo, uh, which is a difference uh, that is something that occurs in the reading traditions. it is a difference, uh, and both of those just mean they, and they're written the same, uh, but they are linguistically different, and they are often, for a historical linguist, interesting to see these kinds of things. Um, another example would be um, in the reading of Hafs, you would say, "khafa" uh, for he feared, while Hamza would read this as Gefa. Uh, uh, so this ra difference, which is a difference in vowel uh, quality. it actually means that some of the readings have more vowels than the classical Arabic that we know today. Uh, classical Arabic, as we adhere to it today, the textbook classical Arabic has three short vowels, A-E-U, and three long vowels, A-E-U. Uh, but Hamza's readings has a fourth long vowel, and this is something we see happening. Um, so these differ from each other quite remarkably in in real linguistic details and that's of course incredibly interesting to 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 a linguist um what's going on here what kinds of things are these what 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 is the language of these reading traditions and what does it mean that we actually have um multiple reading traditions of the same text which actually have grammatical differences between each other uh they have a different grammar different phonology different sounds um what does it mean that that you know get these two opposite uh, answers basically. And a traditional story is that either um, uh, the Quran was in fact revealed in multiple dialects um, by, uh, uh, well, Gabriel through Muhammad, etc., um, or that um, it was explicitly allowed to use your own dialects to recite uh, this text. But that doesn't quite work, and this is really one of, one, of the, one of the mysterious things of what's going on here. This doesn't quite work, because actually, we have very good recordings, records, of what the dialects of uh, this early period looked like. Uh, exactly from the period that these readers were active, these 10 reading traditions uh, attributed to 10 different readers, are all from, say, the mid-2nd Islamic century uh, to early 3rd century. Um, that's around the period uh, that they're active and um, they uh, we have a good record of what the dialects look like according to the grammarians from this period and once we look at this we don't really see any relationship uh, that we would expect so it's not that uh, say the re- reciters from the Hejaz uh, such as Nafi who's from Medina or Abu Jafar, who's from Medina, or Ibn Kathir, who's from Mecca, uh, they don't use the dialect that is reported for the Hijaz, they're not using the dialect that's reported from Mecca or Medina. Uh, they're using forms from all over the place. And not a single one of these readings really is a dialect uh, with all the features that are typical for that dialect that is described by um, the Arab grammarians. So what does that mean? Um, it's a difficult question, uh, but it seems to be that whatever they're doing in the recitation of the Quran, they're not trying to emulate a dialect, they're not trying to emulate a way of speaking. Um, there seems to be a kind of performance thing to this. But there also seems to be a kind of interaction with the text and what the text looks like, because you're not allowed to deviate from what is written. Um, So there are different opinions on what is a deviation from the text and what isn't a deviation from the text. How do you interpret this text? How is that uh, done? And it's quite clear that to some extent, these are choices and these are preferences of people who very often were grammarians themselves. Um, El-Kisa'i, one of the Kufan readers is well known uh, to have debated uh, Sibahoy and was a famous uh, grammarian himself. Abu Amr is also considered an important person within grammatical thoughts in Basra. Um, And that they kind of composed their own features, what they, they thought was nice or wasn't nice, and put that together. Now, the question is how did what did that look like how did that composition of a reading into something that is a reading tradition happen um the the traditional view is that well all of this is in some way recited by the prophet at some point um and people just made choices and that's how it came together um i don't necessarily think that that is the case uh i think it may very well be that they just made choices of what they thought was grammatically more pleasant, more interesting also, and could show off some of the grammatical knowledge there was. Um, But these are some of the uh, things that are playing here.